Hello, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I am your host, Daniel McCauley, and today I'm joined by Drew Casey, managing partner at Mission OG. Uh, they invest in a number of industries, including FinTech, and Drew is a friend of Wharton FinTech and a friend of Wharton. He and I met during a class that I took last year on commercializing technology, and Drew was mentoring a number of engineers and MBA students on how to take ideas and turn them into uh, real products and real businesses. So without further ado, uh, Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining us. Why don't you kick us off by giving us a few minutes on your background, particularly as it pertains to fintech, and a little bit of background on your firm, Mission OG. Great. So uh, I, I took a circuitous path to uh, financial services. I was a civil engineer on undergrad and uh, then found my way back to William & Mary. And basically when I graduated, uh, found a small company in Conshohocken called eCount that uh, at the time was really going head-to-head -head with PayPal. And PayPal was handing out $5 to people and uh, the NASDAQ crashed and we figured out we couldn't hand out $5 to people like PayPal could. So we changed our business model and figured out a way to sell payments and accounts to enterprises. So it was great proving ground for uh, you know, the, the later work we're going to do at Mission OG. But uh, at the time, anytime someone was exchanging value, I was really at the heart of building products that would digitize that onto a card or some type of payment, whether it was ACH or a card or even a value transfer um, that was an on us transaction. And we basically changed industries like automotive sales incentives, tech sales incentives, uh, payroll payments, rebates. Uh, so all rebate checks that were for telecom really because of what eCount did, moved them to a card product. Uh, and in time, uh, City took a liking to that, and uh, we went through a process that uh, Citibank bought us in 2007. Uh, I, I ran the business after they bought us and launched in a couple uh, countries in Europe and Middle East and uh, Asia, and then uh, decided that wasn't a great place to build product anymore inside of a bank. So uh, went to sell my oats, and at the time, we was talking with uh, 3X e-counters and said, how do we do more of these than just one at a time? So we kind of leaned in on some angel investments and uh, we're kind of like any good entrepreneur testing the market if if someone would let us lean in on their investments. Uh, and because of all of our backgrounds, uh, one of the partners is also from uh, a portfolio management company and another one had prior experience at Capital One. We, we definitely lean towards fintech uh, in our investment thesis. But I, I think more importantly is our, operation, our operator's lens that we're looking uh, at companies at. And when we do diligence, we really look at it like we're the CEO or the C chief sales officer and, and, and dig into more than just the spreadsheets behind the companies and, and really what's the distribution model and uh, what's their plan of attack and go to market and is the market really viable and is there really a product market fit? So we, we put on our uh, lens from all the business experience we had in launching all those businesses and uh, you know, really add that to a diligence process that still do the normal investment stuff, you know, portfolio management and uh, control where you're investing and uh, th those types of things. But I think it's the operational lens that we really try to lean on. And at the end, at the end of the day, the goal is higher quality, faster decisions for the entrepreneurs uh, and the partners we're investing in. Um, do you want to give us a couple of examples on 
uh, times that that approach has worked out? Yeah, I'll give you uh, maybe one that uh, worked out really well for us because I think we didn't invest, and then one that worked out uh, is working out well, uh, but you know, based on the investment, uh, you know. Everything that we did in our past was kind of because a client wanted to pay for something. So a lot of our diligence process is actually making introductions to potential clients or the market while uh, we're doing our diligence. So I uh, actually worked with one group that really liked their technology. And it was essentially choreographing a path, using technology to choreograph a path through a, a retail or, or some type of environment that would end in a transaction. And, and knew Whole Foods would really be excited about this. So we made an intro to Whole Foods and said, listen, you know, don't need to sell them, but let's just get them excited about it and see what their response is. And just watching the team prepare for the Whole Foods meeting, uh, you know, we, we probably got the meeting in a day and had two weeks to prepare. And, uh, you know, while I think their tech was savvy, you know, I don't think the team was that savvy to, to go after an enterprise market and sell them. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, that, that type of process uh, from uh, – and. and me, if I was building the product, I would have taken a much different approach and, and a much more rigor against uh, the potential opportunity of Whole Foods. So when you see someone react like that, you, you tend to maybe be less keen on investing no matter what their tech is. And uh, you know, Another you know, company we're super excited about in, in the payment space and fintech space is uh, Pay For Later, a company in London. Uh, they essentially have digitized an installment loan but if you've ever built product inside of a bank, you realize the bank doesn't know how to really go to market and distribute the product and that type of thing. So uh, Scott Law and team there has done an excellent job of making it incredibly easy for the merchants to offer uh, essentially credit terms to the user that helps that merchant at the end of the day raise their top line sales 5 to 15%. So when you walk in and say, you know, we have a product that will help people buy more uh, goods and services from you. Uh, it's an easy sales pitch. So we love products that top, attack the top line. Uh, and then the second thing about Pay For Later is they've really packaged up the banks and the lending product in a way that the merchant doesn't have to worry about it. So it's a turnkey solution for them. They're adding it to an e-commerce site or they're adding it to a counter. And at the end of the day, it's a very simple process for them, uh, and, and it's helping them increase sales. The bank gets the aggregation of the loans, and Pay For Later is a broker in between that's not taking uh, any credit risk in, the, in that type of uh, situation. Yeah, clearly a ton of value being added there. Yeah, it's good business. So I didn't know that you were going to take us overseas to London, so this wasn't part of my, my line of questioning here. But uh, seeing as how we're on the topic, uh, something that's – been brought up by a number of people I've talked to lately is the difference between fintech in the U.S. versus fintech in Europe, particularly London, fintech in Asia. You seem to, you know, your, your general background is pretty global, and you just brought up an example of a fintech company operating in London. Can you give us a minute or two on your thoughts and what the U.S. is good at in that regard and where yeah. we're lagging and some lessons? So uh, you're talking to a guy who launched uh, in, in this case, a prepaid product in over 25 countries. Uh, and I think that if I learned one thing, you got to have local, you got to have local people on the ground knowledge uh, that is executing every day. You, you can't just land, you know, you can't be the Marines and come in there and, and we'll figure it out. Um, a lot of things don't translate. Like at the top of the house, even culturally, things don't translate. In Europe, you know, there's not a lot of card, or excuse me, there's not a lot of check payments. So in the U.S., just by way of example, we we were replacing a lot of check payments at the time that enterprises are making, and 
those aren't those aren't happening uh, in Europe. But even then, you know, the regulatory envelope inside of Europe, inside of Asia, you know, all those places are drastically different. And fintech, uh, whether you like it or not, it's a regulated business. So you, you got to figure out the envelope that you're in. And that's one of the reasons it takes scale and fintech to win because you got to pay for the, the the cost of entry on the regulatory side. Uh, so some of the markets, you know, while the EU might operate uh, equally as 35 countries, I think we were in at one point in EU, but uh, you know, each one of those takes a certain amount of investment. And you know, since then, you know, since I've left, City has even pulled back a lot of those from those countries just because there's not enough scale of business. There's not enough volume, I should say, of business in those countries for them to make sense to maintain the investment. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, the, the U.S. is a great place to start because of the massive size and volume. Uh, but if you're uh, attacking kind of a need in, in any one of those markets, you can be successful. You just you, you got to stay focused on the need that you're attacking in, in each one of those markets and just be careful. That's not going to don't assume it's going to translate. Yeah, don't don't assume scale. Yeah, yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit. We talked about your past. Um, we talked about Mission OG's past. Some of the things you have done. Let's talk about what's going on now, um, and where you see some of the trends that you're observing at the moment progressing into the future. Yeah, uh, I'd probably bring up maybe three uh, in 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 an outline. One would be this concept of personalization at scale. So you have a lot of converging technologies that are allowing people to have an individual experience uh, at scale. So technology is not really the differentiator. For the most part, most companies that I've looked at, you can build anything. Uh, but it's the experience that the user has, and it's the individual experience. Uh, at the highest level, there's this culture that people just expect an individual experience. So I have my own Facebook, I have my own Twitter page, I have my own voice and all those, and each one of those is unique, and they, they kind of identify me as a person, and I have a phone that looks, you know, my phone and the apps I use and how I use it is drastically different than yours, Dan. And this is all driving a culture that just says people expect a personalized experience. Uh, but I don't know if technology has necessarily caught up with it. I don't know if privacy rules have caught up with, the, the, you know, people want this personalization scale, but they're concerned about the privacy aspects. And in some case, they probably should be. In some case, they probably shouldn't be. Uh, so personally, this concept of those technologies that are allowing personalization at scale um, is are, are things that are, you know, in the forefront. And it's a theme that we've seen in a lot of different investment opportunities, not just payments, but social aspects and uh, even the concept of cloud, uh, you know, in cloud computing, it allows people to do a lot of compute and, and direct answers um, against these, you know, big data sets that drive the conclusion that says this is what Dan wants, this is what Drew wants. They're two different things, but it was the same algorithm. Now, the second one is kind of boring, um, but coming from the fintech space, it's a regulated environment. And I think that uh, you know, people often complain about the regulators and all the challenges that they're putting in front of people. Uh, I actually look at it as an opportunity because I think tech can get in front of regulations in a way that allows you to, uh, one, the regulations are way too complicated for anyone to keep up with. So you got to have technology to solve for them. So those people who are willing to just say, I'm going to get over the hurdle of the regulators by offering a super complicated tech solution behind the scenes but simplifies it for the user and makes it check the box for the regulators, 
I think are places where you can really uh, differentiate yourself. Um, so while some people um, will bemoan the, the regulatory challenges, I think technology can really be leveraged to fix or hurdle some of the regulatory stuff. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, same thing, personalization at scale, you know, where Dan's means are and mine and alt lending, you know, we might need different answers inside of an alt lending process or something like that, where the technology can answer those questions and make sure that we get the right disclosure messages, make sure we're not offered loans or make sure we're not offered products that aren't suitable for us. Uh, and, and I think that there's a, there's a lot of opportunity to manage the regulatory process and the collection that of data that the regulatory process requires uh, in, inside of fintech. Uh, the, I think I said three, blockchain. So, you know, I think blockchain is uh, super nascent, super exciting. Uh, it's probably, in, in my guess, the equivalent of like double entry accounting and the internet in, in the long term of uh, the, the opportunity set that it's gonna attack. Um, it, it's funny because I see a lot of similarities in some of the challenges of payment networks trying to get started and blockchain networks trying to get started. Uh, so I think there's a lot of pitfalls in the blockchain uh, technologies that are out there and how they're going to get applied to market and where you're going to see adoption. So we're seeing this like massive investment in blockchain, which I think is awesome. But I also think there'll be certain places that uh, do well in the beginning and, and leveraging the blockchain, and there'll be other places that struggle to take hold even though the investments happened. So are you guys looking at any companies in the blockchain distributed ledger space at the moment, or are you playing the wait-and-see game and see how things shake out through yeah. the first couple innings? I, I think we're in the wait-and-see, but keenly looking at everything. Yeah. Uh, the blockchain's a network with... with with a certain set of rules that say, I'm gonna get on the network and off the network in this way, but the concept of a blockchain is this democratization of trust. So you, you don't need the middleman for trust, you don't need a contract for trust, you, you just have the blockchain. So if you agree to the protocols on both sides, you, you have this democratization of trust. Um, and you've seen that in like the internet democratized content you know, the, the phone democratized communication even before then. Uh, and, you know, there's a certain technology, you know, this, this concept of AWS and Azure and just cloud computing is really democratizing infrastructure. So it's anyone can do compute at any time. It's just a commodity. Uh, and, and when you think about businesses that where they rely on trust uh, and, and they're very complicated, uh, you know, brokerage businesses, remittance businesses, you know, specifically in fintech, but then even just things like authentication of a user. So passwords. Uh, so anywhere where you see a trust transaction happening, uh, there's, I think, the opportunity for a technology like blockchain to disrupt it. Um, personally, the, the similarities I see with previous networks trying and failing are r really twofold. Um, you need three things for a network to happen. You need people to believe the value that the network will deliver. And usually they, they assume a value at scale. So it's, it, they assume like, okay, the network's really big and we're going to make a connection and that's either going to do two things, save me money, uh, make me money. So something on the money side or time, save me, save me time, um, or risk is another one. So reduce risk. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, those needs are easy to identify in the market. We'll all find those. But in the network side, you have to have a standard where people agree to a protocol. So 
you're already seeing challenges just in the Bitcoin use of the of a blockchain where how big should the byte size be and all this because the network, the Bitcoin network is starting to get challenged by how people are using it. So, um, you know, that standard may stay, it may not stay, but, you know, other people are creating blockchains, but they need enough of the third thing, which is critical mass, to get the blockchain to work. So you and I could invent a blockchain. It could be the best technology out there. And uh, we could have three people on each side of it transacting great, but if, if it's not a network, if it doesn't have that critical mass. And so you see a lot of payment opportunities rise and fall because they never get to that critical mass uh, of use. So you know, th I think there's some places within the industry that will really benefit uh, or, or really, excuse me, take advantage of uh, the blockchain because of their position in the market. Uh, Places like an exchange, unfortunately, the government, like these are places that can can sponsor or ch or or um, drive the use of a standard on both sides of a blockchain. Um, but you know, you might also be in a case where we're in Betamax and VHS again, where you you get both sides arguing that like my standard's better than your standard. Um, I certainly think during the reconciliation process, like internal systems that are trying to reduce cost super complicated, lots of different parties interacting, but they're all my parties, like all Bank of America people or all um, people within a, maybe a certain co-op where they have a mass there already of transactions where they can lower their costs. will be some of the places that the blockchain helps first and, and where it's truly commercialized uh, and, and, and the value is, is uh, apparent in lowering costs, essentially. So I couldn't really gather what you're opinion would be here on the the Bitcoin blockchain versus some other blockchain versus private blockchains. Yep. You know, and it sounded like you were kind of comparing the Bitcoin blockchain to maybe Betamax. <laughs> or no, to VHS, sorry. It's the inferior product, but it wins out, right? Is, is the fact that Bitcoin's got um, an order of magnitude, more compute on the network, a barrier to entry to any other competing technology becoming the de facto solution? Is 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 the is Bitcoin the sort of blockchain? That, that uh, the future? One man's opinion, yeah. uh, and and I think it's certainly there's a lot of benefit to seeing something operate in scale. Uh, so there's certainly a lot of benefit to seeing something operate in scale, like Bitcoin. But I think there'll be others um, just by the nature of not wanting to leverage, say, a Bitcoin. Uh, because they'll want it to be more controlled and more internal, uh, and, and they'll, they'll want to have some regulatory purview over it. So I don't know if, uh, if it'll be the end-all, be-all. So if you were to ask me, is Bitcoin the blockchain, I would say no. Like, I think there's blockchain technology, and I think there's Bitcoin, um, which is a type of cryptocurrency that obviously leverages the blockchain. So what are maybe some of the applications of the technology outside of um, the really obvious ones, like new currencies or yeah. um, internal accounting networks. What have you come across? What are some of the craziest ideas that you've heard pitched or that you've seen talked about? Uh, yeah, you know, on the the, the the block, like I said, the blockchain is this this concept of trust, brokering trust. So um, the places that are probably the most, I think, should be the most insecure are those places that broker trust with a brand. So. You know, insurance models uh, are, are the types of things that says, okay, that's a solid brand. I trust it, so 
I'm going to pay my premium to the insurance company because they're, they're going to be there for me. Um, and and they're, they're inside of a transaction where, uh, you know, your trust is based on brand. Um, you know, the, the other places on the blockchain that I think would probably disrupt the most is where there's a middleman uh, that, that's charging a premium. So, you know, international remittances and inter- not even payments, but just international bills of lading and, and, and invoices and that type of thing where I don't know person A and person B, but they're, or person A and person B don't know each other, but they're transacting. Uh, but if we both are willing to use the protocol across, say, this trade blockchain, then I know that the, the crowd will, will trust, will allow me to trust A and, and B to trust A and B, A to trust B uh, in that transaction. Um, so, you know, I think the government of Honduras is basically taking every single property and putting it on a blockchain uh, because there's, you know, they didn't have a great rule of law around the property stuff. Um, you know, there's been examples of tracing, uh, you know, putting traces on diamonds, you know, basically putting them within the blockchain. Uh, you know, it, it has this concept of a persistent registry. Uh, you know, I go, I go back to, say, the financial crisis in 2008. You have all these strips of uh, securities and no one knows what securities they own inside of these things. So people, you know, at the time would have really benefited from this persistent history of all these, uh, you know, do I have good debt or bad debt inside of my uh inside of my security here. So the blockchain is, you know, like I said, it's like double entry accounting. If, if you can get people to start to adopt it. Um, the thing that's different about it is double entry accounting is the same for everyone, no matter where you kind of wake up in the world. Uh, but the blockchain, it's going to need a standard setter in each one of the markets that it goes through. So I think the challenge you have with the blockchain is no one person in today's economy or society will be able to set like a standard on the blockchain. And not to mention it probably better if it's specialized towards different uses. Um, like I don't know if Bitcoin will translate great into, say, a trading platform that wants to leverage the blockchain. Like they'd have to have different um, mechanics in, in order to support the volume and, and the amount of participation uh, that, that would be uh, put against that system. I like the example you brought up about the financial crisis. I almost wonder if if Satoshi had come along a decade earlier, would we still have had a financial crisis? I'm sure we would have. Well, we probably would have. Yeah. I mean, but at the end of the day, like someone like Moody's, they can rate all these bonds, but they're just rating like a big class, whereas the blockchain, the technology exists in order to understand every single piece, every single strip of a security that's inside of a portfolio or you know one security that's made up of multiple securities. So... Someone could keep track of all of that. I think the harder part will be getting the group, whether it's the government, whether it's uh, an industry exchange, to agree to a format. Um, you know, history, I, I, I often say rhymes. So, you know, I, I think what you'll probably see some effect in the blockchain is similar to, say, like an ATM network where used to be that, you know, when I went, I went to Villanova undergrad, used to be when I walked on Villanova's campus, I had to pick a local bank so I would have access to those ATMs. Um, and when I left to go home to Virginia, I couldn't use my ATM card. So, you know, had all these little networks together that were valuable um, for, the, for people, but at the end of the day, they, they became unvaluable when you started to go outside the, the region. So I think what you might start to see in the blockchain is 
you might see Bank of America have something homegrown, or maybe it's three or four banks, and Barclays has something homegrown, and they start to work internally to fix, say, a reconciliation process that's super complicated on their side, but uh, in time, they'll find a way to link those together as opposed to reinventing them all uh, in, in order for it to happen. And then, you know, hopefully some larger people who can set a standard will also step in and the, in, in certain places, whether it's the exchange or it might even be people that have a lot of influence over the user, uh, uh, say, on a password side. You know, one place where I think you might see the blockchain take off faster or earlier is where it's not regulated. So something like password authentication or, or users trying to authenticate one another um, through a, um, a commerce transaction or just logging in somewhere. Um, you know, if you're already starting to see it in use, like you log in with Facebook, you log in with Twitter, but the blockchain could be a universal, it could be tuned to be a universal way to log in and, and manage trust um, where the crowd is kind of dictating whether it's a good or bad authentication of a user. So we could probably talk about blockchains and Bitcoins <laughs> and distributed ledgers for a very, very long time and sure our users would probably all turn the show off by that point so let's switch gears uh before we before we end here and talk a little bit more high level about fintech in general you've been through at least one or two cycles i'm sure of of fintech booms and interest in the space and you've seen companies fail and succeed and grow and exit and you've been a part of many of those stories um, a lot of the founders i talked to today um believe that they're not building the next wave of fintechs to get acquired by the existing financial institutions. Many of them believe strongly that they're building the next generation of companies that are going to be up alongside or supplant the existing banks and existing um, financial incumbents. Do you think that's true? Do you think this time it's different? Or are we going to see what uh, I understand is a pretty common theme in the world of fintech, that these, yeah. these companies come up, they build the new technology, they get enveloped into the big banks and the startup culture kind of dies, but the products make it mainstream. I think there's two big lenses to look through in, in assessing that. One is money will always be a regulated industry. Uh, so I think what we've seen in this last wave is people are saying, okay, I'll be regulated. So you, you get people like Uber who say, I'll just apply for 50 state money licenses. They don't know whether they're uh, regulated or not, but th you know they they have how many billions of dollars, and it's not a it's not a meaningful expense for them. So th they can do a lot with a money services business license in in all fifty states, and they have enough scale and critical mass to manage that. So I think those people who are willing to jump over that high hurdle of regulation, uh, I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't um, be independent. Um, and, and just allow them to be, the money side of it, to be regulated. Um, I, th I think there's other businesses that when I look at banks' technology and I look at their technology today, I just say there's no way banks are going to replace their technology. They're going to have to get and acquire new technology. Um, it, there's so much momentum inside of those banks and, uh, that they, they need new patterns and reinvention. So from someone who's kind of, built fintech and then had this technical debt you know that you you go to bed with and you say hey uh, you know i wish i was building 10 years later um it's really hard to change the wheels when you when you have all the consumers and all that type of stuff uh, so I, I think that 
Um, the ones who can get to critical mass, I, I think they could be independent organizations. Uh, you know, the, the, the regulators, they're slow to catch up. Just they, so I think they're going to have to figure out how to deal with those types of people uh, that, are, that are going and, and blazing their own path. And it'll probably look a lot like what they ask of the banks, you know, balance sheet size and um, consumer advocacy rights and, and those types of things. Uh, so I think you probably see both. Um, the ones who can get the ones who can get big enough and be independent and, and truly pay for independence uh, on the regulatory front will be will, will, can stay independent. Um, I, I do uh, also kind of subscribe to the philosophy that um, transactions uh, and and certain things outside of holding assets are being taken away from the banks. So we're in a part of a cycle where transactions are disappearing. You know, you you. You really walk into Starbucks and you don't really transact anymore. You show them a phone and it, it kind of could disappear. And the tech's there for me to just walk in and out. Uh, you know, I drive 50, quote unquote, 55 miles an hour through Speed Pass or, or through Easy Pass, excuse me, on, on, and, and I pay. Um, and so that transaction has disappeared. Uh, Uber, obviously, everyone talks about the transaction disappearing. So I think you're, we're getting into this time where, you know, the banks used to own the transactions, credit cards, debit cards. You know, prepaid cards. Now you're getting in it where they hold just the assets and the lending. But now you're seeing lending getting taken out from banks. Uh, I don't know if that'll stay always outside of the bank's purview. It'll it'll definitely be regulated. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, like the role of the bank is becoming more utilitarian than it is product focused. Uh, so it's a piping mechanism as opposed to a consumer facing uh, uh, endeavor. So if if the banks are if, if anything's going to change, I think the banks are going to slowly but surely lose the concept of a customer. Um, so uh, they'll have enterprise customers, but I think long and short of it is you know, your relationship with the bank will be far different than it was, say, 10 years ago. That's probably uh, as good a note as any to leave it on. We've, we've talked about personalization of scale, blockchain, regulation, global fintech, the future of fintech, and who's going to win, fintechs or banks? So, uh, Drew, thanks a lot for joining me on the show. This is a great chat, and I look forward to having you back on the show sometime again soon. Thanks, Dan.